This is a story you think you know. In fact, you're absolutely certain you know it. It's Bloody Sunday, November 21st, 1920. It's Michael Collins directing a squad of IRA men to kill 14 British spies and agents in their beds. It's the police going to Croke Park, firing on a crowd at a football game and killing another 14 people. It's the Hogan stand. It's the Irish rugby team playing England in 2007 at Croke Park. It's Queen Elizabeth II visiting Croke Park in 2011. All these little gestures trying to mend that broken history. And it is that, but it's also so much more. Think for a second about the bare detail of what happened in Croke Park. That simple top line, 14 people killed in a mass shooting, shot, trampled, crushed. 14 people left dead. Footballers, barmen, schoolboys, a butcher shop worker, labourers, an ex-army veteran, four IRA volunteers, all in 90 seconds of gunfire. But who are we talking about? Do we know them? Who were the victims? And who were the people that killed them? Have we ever been allowed to imagine fully the horror of that day? What kind of Ireland brought them all to that place to commit that kind of violent act and to die that type of callous, terrifying death? My name is Michael Foley, and for three years, I researched the events of Bloody Sunday in Croke Park for a book called The Bloodied Field, trying to piece together an impression of what occurred there that day. I read accounts of the most appalling detail. Pools of blood and shards of bone sticking out of a football field. Fathers left mourning their children, explaining to a reporter how their child's body was left on the street for an ambulance to find. I found long-lost pictures of the victims in the pages of old tabloid newspapers. I read reports suppressed for decades, memos and letters written detailing the horror of the day and the truth of what happened but some of those were quickly forgotten when they didn't fit the official story. In autumn 2019, I got a phone call from Croke Park asking if I could verify a name and address for a headstone being raised to remember Jerome O'Leary, a 10-year-old schoolboy shot dead while he sat on the wall at one end of the ground, where Michael Hogan was immortalised by the naming of that stand in Croke Park. For 99 years, Jerome was among the eight Bloody Sunday victims left in an unmarked grave. He had no family left, no one to verify he even existed. In this series of podcasts, we'll meet all those characters properly for the first time. We'll meet their killers, we'll meet the politicians and the gunmen who shaped a brutal war of independence, and find out how Bloody Sunday in Croke Park has reverberated through history ever since. In this first episode, we meet Michael Hogan, the Tipperary player killed in the shooting and the massacre's only recognisable face for nearly a century. Yet what do we really know even about one of Ireland's most famous martyrs? So join us as we return to the bloodied field. In the summer of 2019, a package was delivered to the GA Museum in Croke Park containing a blood-stained pair of glasses. An accompanying letter told the story. 
1920, Annie Burke was a young woman from Dromore West, County Sligo. On the weekend of Bloody Sunday, she was journeying from Tipperary, where she worked, home to Sligo, and she stopped off in Dublin to meet some friends. They had the idea to attend the football match between Dublin and Tipperary in Croke Park that Sunday. Annie tagged along. They found good seats near the sideline on the Joneses Road side of the ground. Then, 10 minutes into the game, the shooting started. A piece of grit struck Annie's glasses and broke them. The fragment cut Annie's face and drew some blood. When the shooting was over, a Tipperary player started talking to them. Mick Hogan was dead, he said. He was over there, near the goalposts at the Hill 60 end of the ground. Annie ran across the field. Instinctively, she took off her coat and covered his body. Then she knelt beside him and waited till a priest arrived to give him the last rites. Then she returned to where her friends were waiting. They left Croke Park in silence. Annie never wore the glasses again. They were never repaired, never cleaned. Last year, Annie's daughter Margaret, now a nun in England, passed the glasses to the GA Museum, to Croke Park, to the place that gave them their most profound meaning. The glasses, all by themselves, representing for us now so much of the raw, uncontrollable violence of that day. When the firing did stop, Jim Egan, probably the Tipperary player who spoke to Annie Burke, was escorted by police from Hogan's body. Egan's hands were coloured red with Hogan's blood, glinting in the sun. He walked towards the Tipperary players, gathered now at the Hill 60 end, telling his friends that the dead man was Mick Hogan and asking aloud for a priest to help him. That sense of terror, that sense of this place of dreams and happiness being polluted so violently by fear and death was lost down through the years. The Bloody Sunday killings in Croke Park gradually got absorbed into a bigger narrative about Michael Collins and the IRA, about British agents being murdered in their beds that Sunday morning as the IRA attempted to strike at the heart of the British Intelligence Service in Ireland. In time, the massacre became a footnote, maybe a couple of lines in a history book offering a tragic and futile twist to a horrendous story that captured the horror and dark violence of the Irish War of Independence. Plaques were erected to remember the victims. Some got the names wrong. Estimates of the dead ranged between a dozen and 16, depending on where we read the story. Eight of the 14 victims stayed buried in unmarked graves for almost a century. Mick Hogan was immortalized by the great stand at Croke Park name in his memory in 1926. The journey up those steps soon to become synonymous with the greatest sporting moments of any GA player's life. That sense of terror, that sense of this place of dreams and happiness being polluted so violently by fear and death, that was lost down through the years. Even Mick Hogan's story was half forgotten. Some said Hogan was captain that day. 
Some said he played right cornerback. Others said right halfback. He was a star player. He was a nobody. The Dublin-Tipperary game became an All-Ireland final, not just a challenge game. Was Hogan a veteran player? Was Hogan a rookie? Was he an IRA volunteer? Was he a footballer? Like the glasses bearing Annie Burke's blood, every piece of the story was cherished like a relic by a few people, but rarely put together into one. And that left room for myths to take hold and for the real story to fall through the cracks. So where did Hogan come from? Who was he? The events unfolding at his home in Grange Mokler, County Tipperary, on the weekend of the match in Dublin, offer a good place to meet him. By the middle of November 1920, Patrick Butler, a local IRA volunteer from Grange Mokler, had been watching the RIC barracks in Glenbower for weeks. He noticed that the number of RIC men in the barracks was reduced to six when the rest went on patrol every Sunday afternoon. A swiftly executed plan to take the barracks could deliver a sizable return of guns and ammunition for the IRA. He proposed his idea at the local brigade headquarters the week before Dublin played Tipperary. It was approved and three men, including Sean Hogan, one of a trinity of local IRA volunteers, along with Sean Tracy and Dan Breen, celebrated by many as outlaw heroes in Tipperary and as far away as Dublin, were sent to Grange Mokler to plan the attack. The Brigade OC decided to send Sean Hogan and Sean Hayes to help us, Butler recounted in his statement to the Bureau of Military History. A collection of 1,773 accounts given by individuals who played an active part in the Irish Revolutionary period between 1913 and 1921. Jerry Kiley also came with them. Hogan, Hayes and Kiley stayed at Michael Hogan's house at Grange Mokler. That is, in the home of Michael Hogan, who was killed in Croke Park while playing a football match on Bloody Sunday, on the same day as that on which we proposed to take Glenbower Barracks. That was how the waters of war, sport, farming and family life converged in Mick Hogan's parlour that weekend. Mick Hogan's life was immersed in all of those things. He was born in 1896 to Patrick and Margaret Hogan into a small farm at Corisilla on the fringe of Grangemokler village. The names of the townlands around them spoke to the harshness of the land. Cruan, hard place. Moan Crua, hard bog. Glenisciach, Glen of the Whitethorn bushes. Ballinruin, home of the Moory place. The local climate was a few degrees colder than other nearby places. The weather was a little harder. The old coach drivers between Dublin and Cork always maintained the road between Nine Mile House and Grange Mokler was the coldest stretch of a long trip. But the Hogans made a good life and reared seven children. Michael was the second eldest, a year behind his brother Dan. Three more sisters, Catty, Margaret and Mary, were joined by two more boys, Tom and Paddy. 
when it came to school, the academic potential shown by Tom and Dan matched up with talk of a good teacher in Wine Gap across the fields in Kilkenny. The others, including Mick, went to the schoolhouse in Grange Mokler under the eye of Morris Brown. The schoolmaster appointed his own son, Morris Jr., as Mick Hogan's minder for his first day at school. Years later, Brown recalled his earliest memories of Hogan in a semi-fictional memoir called The Big Sycamore. Mick looked lonely and bewildered, he wrote. Soon his eyes filled with tears. He cried out with trembling underlip, want to go home to see Da. This refrain he kept up for some time, like a robin redbreast, not varying his note. The teacher tried to distract him with marbles and a ball frame, opened up a book and showed him pictures illustrating old rhymes like Ba Ba Black Sheep. In the end, Morris Jr. was sent with Mick to his mother's shop in the village. As a special treat, Kate Brown gave Mick a penny package. One in every 500 packages held a ticket that entitled the winner to a watch. Mick didn't win, but the tears finally dried up. The Browns and the Hogans were lifelong friends. Morris was there at the end of Mick's life. His brother John Brown was alongside Mick Hogan for the moments that shaped him as a man. They played football together in Grange Mokler. Mick Hogan displaying the potential already shown by his older brother Dan, now departed to work for the railway company in Monaghan. In time, Dan Hogan would play football for Monaghan, referee Ulster Championship football games and become a leading figure in the Northern IRA alongside Ono Duffy, the infamous IRA leader, who became so close to Dan that he often joined him on summer holidays to Grange Mokler. Maybe that legacy nudged Mick Hogan into the local Sinn Féin club in early 1919. Maybe it was the fact John Brown was a founding member. Or maybe it was simply something to do in a quiet country village on the weeknights in between football games at the weekend. By the time Mick had joined at the beginning of 1919, Dan Hogan had been arrested with O'Duffy for illegal assembly at a football game the previous autumn and jailed in Belfast. Having been granted temporary parole to get home that Christmas, Dan had returned to Belfast jail late one night to be readmitted. But the prison authorities refused to process him, so they asked him to come back. Dan stayed the night in a hotel and returned the following morning with a receipt for his lodgings. The prison paid the bill. It was important that Dan got home that Christmas. On October 28, 1918, Patrick Hogan, their father, had taken ill and died, leaving Mick to take over the farm. Around Grange Mokler, the countryside was becoming inflamed. The first sparks of the Irish War of Independence were seen in nearby Salahed Beg in January 1919, when Sean Hogan, Dan Breen, Sean Tracy, Seamus Robinson and a handful of other volunteers killed two RIC officers, transporting Jellignite to a local quarry by horse and cart. 
the IRA men riding off at speed with their swag like bandits. The same morning, the first doll convened in the mansion house in Dublin, comprising 73 Sinn Féin MPs elected in the 1918 elections. Different energies were gathering. The veterans of the 1916 Rising had been released and returned to Ireland. Some were freshly politicised. Some were already mobilised. Mick Hogan was soon paying twopence a week into the Sinn Féin club and drilling with the local IRA volunteers in Grange Mokler, marching a couple of times a week through the village, hurleys on their shoulders like rifles. By the weekend of the Dublin Tipperary match in November 1920, Sean Hogan was trusting Mick enough to sit in his front kitchen and hand him messages to deliver to the IRA leadership in Dublin that weekend. But normal life, farming and football, they all went on in parallel. In summer 1919, John Brown was hit in the stomach during a football game with Grange Mokler. He suffered through the night before the doctor recommended he make the treacherous journey to hospital in Dublin. He had suffered a ruptured duodenum. Infection set in and on July 5th, John Brown passed away. When the train from Dublin bearing his coffin arrived in Kilkenny, the local IRA volunteers draped a tricolour flag over the lid. From the town of Callan to Grange Mokler, a two-mile procession of cars and bicycles followed the coffin. It was 11 that night when they arrived in Grange Mokler to a village in mourning. No one could imagine they would make a similar journey again within 18 months. Hogan and his friends talked warmly about John Brown. If he hadn't died playing football, said one, John would surely have lost his temper with the policeman one night and taken him with him. His mother Kate, the lady who consoled the child Mick Hogan with the penny package, wondered now whether she'd ever smile again. Mick helped her on the family farm and often called in at night time with the news of the day, telling stories with the same dry humour as her son. I feel he has only got a short journey. I expect he'll come back some evening after the cows. The impact on her of her son's death was terrible. Football being such a central part of their lives, Mick's progress onto the Tipperary team would have lightened their conversations. At the beginning of 1919, Tipperary were among the foremost teams in the country. They had lost the 1918 All-Ireland Final to Wexford, who themselves created history that day by becoming the first team to ever win four successive All-Ireland titles. But Tipperary had run them to the wire and lost by just a single point. Mick Hogan wasn't on that Tipperary team, but he was appearing on their radar. In December 1919, Tipperary were set to play Dublin in a challenge game in Croke Park for a set of gold medals. It was the last game of a football season already disrupted by the War of Independence. 
and the dwindling number of competitive games already made even a challenge game between two major powers like Dublin and Tipperary an attractive proposition. Extra, extra, read all about it. Tipperary claim an improvement in all departments in their present team, said the correspondent for the Freeman's Journal. If this is so, tomorrow's match should provide the most scientific and exciting game seen at Croke Park for some time. On December 10th, 1919, Mick Hogan stepped onto Croke Park for the first time on a cold, wet day. Tipperary won the game. One goal and three points to one goal and a single point. That night, both teams went to a Cayley in the Mansion House in Dublin city centre. The following day, Mick went home with the rest of the Tipperary team. Gold medal in his pocket. Nearly a year later, he was back in Dublin as the Tipperary right corner back. Mick will be joined on the Tipperary panel that weekend by two other Grange Mokler players. His boyhood friend, Dick Lanigan, and Jerry Shelley. Mikey Tobin, another graduate of the local school, was due to travel, but his father was severely ill. The players gathered and feathered that Saturday morning to catch the train to Dublin. And they hit trouble pretty soon. A group of soldiers boarded the train at Ballybrophy, County Leash, not quite halfway to Dublin. A few Tipperary players were playing card games of 25 for a penny a hand when one soldier edged past Jackie Brett from Mullinahone, who was talking to a priest, Father Pat Delahunty from Kilkenny. As well as being a Tipperary footballer, Jackie Brett was also an IRA volunteer and Father Delahunty was a well-known IRA sympathiser. The soldier directed a remark towards the priest. Brett responded by swinging a punch at him. The soldiers jumped on Brett. The tip team jumped on them. Bill Ryan, the Tipperary right halfback, had his football boots slung out the window. As the train trundled into Maryborough, now known as Port Leash, the soldiers jumped off. The Tipperary players celebrated their victory, but then they started to worry about whether the police might be waiting for them once word of the fight reached Dublin. They landed that evening at Kingsbridge Station, now known as Houston Station. A group of black and tans, the fearsome police force, comprised mainly of ex-British servicemen created to augment the dwindling RIC, approached the players. All of them braced themselves, including Mick Hogan, those IRA dispatches burning a hole in his shoe. But the tans didn't stop. They made for another man. A weighing machine in Port Leash had been vandalised and the money stolen. And the culprit was led away with change spilling from his pockets. That night, after the Tipperary team had settled in their rooms at Barry's Hotel near Croke Park, Mick Hogan made for Phil Shanahan's bar with his teammate, Tommy Ryan. Shanahan was a veteran Tipperary Republican in Dublin running a bar in Dublin's most notorious red light district, the Monto. It hosted British spies alongside IRA men, gangsters and crooks, 
mingled with prostitutes and a sprinkling of Dublin's high society, getting their kicks in the seediest part of town. Tommy Ryan himself was a committed IRA man who even managed to steal a gun while at training camp in Dungarvan with the Tipperary team before the 1918 All-Ireland final. In Shanahan's, he met D.P. Walsh, another IRA man from Feathered in Tipperary. Walsh knew about the impending attacks by Collins' squad on British agents across the city, but he couldn't get into detail. Ryan joined Walsh in Shanahan's cellar to help shift some guns and ammunition to be used the following morning. They gathered up revolvers and porter bottles filled with bullets and headed for a hotel on Gardner Place, a 10-minute walk through the heart of the city. The plan we adopted was to walk one on either side of the street on a route up to Gardner Place with the understanding that, should one of us be intercepted or fired at by an enemy agent, the other would be in a position to assist by firing on the attacker. Having deposited the material, we returned again to Phil Shanahan's that night and I volunteered to take part in the job, whatever it was to be the next morning. In between times, we had gone to confession and felt then that we were fully prepared to meet anything that might turn up. Seemingly, somebody in Phil Shanahan's that night had got worried about the fact that we had learned that there was a job coming off the next morning, and so there was an atmosphere of hush-hush. We were told that the whole thing had been called off or postponed or something, so we returned to our lodgings and went to bed. Mick Hogan awoke the following morning to news of the killing of British agents across the city, but his mind was elsewhere. He was thinking of Frank Burke, the daring and brilliant Dublin forward Hogan would mark that day. Hogan was still a rookie, making his way, building the experience and self-belief required to keep his place on a strong team. In modern terms, Frank Burke was a superstar, an All-Ireland hurling medal winner with Dublin, and he would win All-Ireland football medals in time. As Mick Hogan saw it, there was only one solution. He found Bill Ryan, who was set to play at right half-back, right in front of Mick Hogan. Ryan was a veteran Tipperary player and a well-established presence on the team. Swap with me, Hogan asked him. Mark Frank Burke. But Bill had a problem. Having lost his boots in the fight on the train, a replacement set had been found, but Bill had spent the entire night walking the halls of the hotel trying to soften them out. On top of that, the boots were too big. Marking Burke under those conditions only promised humiliation. That morning, in Barry's hotel, the Tipperary players gathered in the lobby before going to Crow Park. Morris Brown, Mick Hogan's old friend from Grange Mokler School, had travelled to Dublin from Grange Mokler by car with his friend Mick Kerrigan. They found Mick Hogan in the throng and shared a few words. As they left to go, Brown looked back and saw Tipperary footballers and neighbours and friends smiling and talking. They were as happy as sandboys, he wrote. Back in Grange Mokler that weekend, the attack on the RIC barracks in Glenbower was still under discussion in Mick Hogan's parlour. In the end, Sean Hogan and some others felt the risk of loss of life to the IRA outweighed the potential Hall of Arms. The attack was called off and Patrick Butler, Mick Hogan's old teammate and architect of the plan, was furious. 
To test my theory, he said, I got into the motor car, taking with me my brother Jimmy, Ned Glendon and the bogman, Morris McGrath. We drove to Glenbower and stopped the car outside the police barracks. As I had anticipated, a policeman opened the door and came out, leaving the door open behind him. Around the same time Butler was proving his aborted plan could have worked, Mick Hogan's match in Dublin was getting underway. The crowd outside was huge and getting bigger. Once the Tipperary team arrived in Croke Park and settled in the small tin huts that passed for dressing rooms, Mick Hogan tried again to persuade Bill Ryan in the dressing room to take on Frank Burke. Once again, Bill showed him his boots, his feet rattling inside them. Mick Hogan turned away. He went to his own bag and rummaged inside and returned with a spare boot lace for Bill to tighten around his right boot. Bill Ryan lived long enough to see all of his teammates die and he kept the boot lace for the rest of his life. That moment, the sharing of a boot lace. That moment was Mick Hogan, the 24-year-old rookie footballer helping the veteran, facing into a game that could define his future. He was the farmer cutting hay for Kate Brown, the boy with the penny package and the dry sense of humour, now grown into an IRA volunteer in a small village, drilling and marching, carried along by the unfolding events that swept up so many around him. The next time they were all together, it was for Mick's funeral. Volunteers stood sentry through the night around his coffin in Grange Mowclough Church. People queued to gaze through the glass coffin lid at their friend, at this martyr. No one had expected the weekend to work out this way. No one. Join us next time on the Bloodied Field podcast as we explore the personalities and characters that populated the British authorities in Ireland, the key figures on Bloody Sunday, the perpetrators of the Bloody Sunday massacre and the volatile mix of frustration, indifference, political dithering, fear and sheer hate that fueled British policy in Ireland and ultimately led to the horrors waged in Croke Park. Thanks for listening. The Bloodied Field podcast is written and produced by me, Michael Foley, and edited by Andrew Foley. We had three special guests on the show. Anne Foley played Kate Brown, Daniel Burke as a newspaper boy, and Shane Stapleton voiced Tipperary player Tommy Ryan. Additional music was also provided by Jim Crowley. You can find us and follow this full series of podcasts at gaa.ie forward slash bloody sunday or on spotify you can also contact us on twitter at bloodiedfieldp one or email us at bloodiedfieldpodcast at gmail.com and if you've enjoyed this episode please do spread the word this is a story we feel everyone needs to hear <laughs>